Some of these owners are incredibly motivated to get rid of this property, and some of them have equity. So that is a great situation to be in because then you can negotiate with them a very low price. Best ever listeners, we have launched bestevercauses.com. That's bestevercauses.com. We profile a nonprofit or a cause that is near and dear to our heart, get the word out about their cause, and also donate money towards their cause. If you'd like to, one, learn more about the causes that we're profiling, we do one a month, then go to bestevercauses.com. And if you want to suggest a cause that we profile that is near and dear to your heart, then go to bestevercauses.com. And there's a little form at the bottom of the page where you can submit one and we'll check it out. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. With us today, Lior Gantz. How you doing, Lior? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, nice to have you on the show. A little bit about Lior. He is the president of Wealth Research Group. Over the last 16 years, he's been an entrepreneur. He's built, run, and managed various ventures across two continents. He's a deep value-add investor. He loves researching businesses that are off the radar and completely unknown to most financial publications. He's wholesaled vacant homes. He's done lease options. He's got a few rentals. And he's also investing in REITs, R-E-I-T, REITs. And he's going to talk to us about the pros and cons of having investments in REITs over traditional real estate too, which would be interesting. So with that being said, Leo, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Yeah, sure. I always say that my financial career started as a survival mechanism. My father went bankrupt three times. And the first time was when I was 13. And right around that time, I started having my own goals and desires and things that I wanted to do, and I couldn't. So I started working when I was 13. And I think doing that helped me build this muscle of saving money. Kids, when they get money, they simply spend it all. They have no idea that you can have a bank account, etc. So I had a bank account and by 16 from doing some assistant coaching in basketball and then the parents of the kids asked me if I do babysitting. So I started doing babysitting and painting decks and worked in a closing shop. By the time I was 16, started delivering pizzas and all that. And by 18, I had like $25,000. Uh, <laughs> That's incredible. I know. Well, you don't have a lot of expenses when you grow up. <laughs> no taxes. The rents is kind of paid for you. So food, all that kind of stuff. And obviously no gasoline. So I got my parents to sign a waiver and let me do my own investing. And my grandfather bought me two books, one from Warren Buffett and another one from Peter Lynch. And those got me started investing age 16. It was two months after the dot-com bubble burst. But obviously that meant nothing to me. I didn't even know what that meant. But it was a great time to start in getting invested because everything was very cheap. And luckily, I got started with China. Who would invest in China in the year 2000? But that is kind of where that book from Peter Lynch and Warren Buffett took me. Warren Buffett said, buy whatever is out of favor. And Peter Lynch said, look around you. And that look around you was easy for me because I was 18. I was buying all these branding clothes and everything said made in China. <laughs> So my first company that I ever bought is VF Corp. I still own it until today. It's a bit expensive right now. So obviously I'm not adding to my position, but 
for 18 years, I've owned this company. It's the manufacturer of the North Faith, Timberland, Lee, Wrangler. All these brands are under that umbrella, but nobody knows it. So that's how I got started. How much did you put into VF Corp then and what's it worth now? Well, I don't know exactly how much risk adjusted or inflation adjusted in today's dollars I put back then. It'll be interesting to look at it. But the company itself has flourished in terms of price. It's gone better than the S&P 500. So you obviously beat the markets by going with a company like VF Corp. And the reason is, and that's why I like these type of companies, is because they raise their dividends. So VF Corp in 2000 was right around dollar cost adjusted around $6. Today it's 77 So you're talking about more than a tenfold move. But the real beauty is that the dividend yield used to be like $0.06 cents per share. And right now it's around 42 per share. So that is like buying an asset, like a real estate asset for hundred grand in 2000. And back then it rented for $1,000. And right now it rents for 7000 a month. The same asset. That is the power of these compounding dividends. And it's why I make sure that I have both stocks and real estate in my portfolio. And these type of stocks, I call them wealth stocks or dividend growers. If you go to wealthresearchgroup.com forward slash dividend, you can actually see a list of a number of them that I personally own and, and that I wrote a full report on because these are the type of companies that do these types of moves. From a real estate standpoint, how active are you? In 2008, while the subprime mortgage problem happened, I was on a four-day rafting tour in Green River, Colorado. So I don't know nothing. I have no cell reception, no signal, no nothing. I get out of the trip after four days and the word ended, right? So you go into the trip, nothing's wrong. You come out of it and everything's wrong. And it really taught me a lesson in market panic because I wasn't part of that initial panic. So to me, it looked very foreign. And I didn't end up selling my shares or doing a lot of things that other people have done. I was kind of looking at it from the perspective of what happened in four days that will make me change my mind regarding everything I know is true. So when everyone else was leaving real estate and didn't want anything to do with it, I started a real estate business in 2009 in the U.S. And my niche was to help banks dispose of their glut portfolios of foreclosures. And I had to develop big, big relationships with a number of key brokers. And I got what we call pocket listings first. And that was good for a couple of years. Then it got too competitive. And I moved into my favorite niche until today, which is wholesaling of vacant homes. So right now in America, there are about 2.1 million vacant properties. I've always get asked the question, why do properties go vacant? And there's so many reasons, Joe. I bet you know this as well, but just because you're in the market all the time. People get divorced and then the house stays vacant for months. People squander in there. They rip off the copper. The bushes are get overgrown. And then you get into a position where now this house will cost you money to put it back on the market. It can be inheritance, relocation, unpaid taxes, anything from property taxes to other types of taxes. Vacant homes is a frequent site when you drive the streets. So the real problem is finding out where the owner is. But if you can do that, some of these owners are incredibly motivated to get rid of this property. 
and some of them have equity. So that is a great situation to be in because then you can negotiate with them a very low price. And once you got that contract locked with them, but the real problem is finding them so people would understand this. But the minute you find them and you're able to negotiate with them, you can create a situation where you really get a cheap, cheap property in your hands that a flipper or a fixer-upper, a small-time construction company, would love to buy it off your hands. So what you do is instead of close on that property and try to market it, you simply wholesale it. So the way you do it is you just assign your rights to that contract, to the sales contract, to another person who wants that property. And you do it for a few thousand dollars, but your name is not on the chain of title. It's a very easy transaction to do. You don't have to appear in front of the title company. And you can do that a few times a month. In my heyday, I used to do that a lot. And it works everywhere. It works in any type of environment. If it's a seller's market, if it's a buyer's market, it's just there. You said the real problem is finding where the owner is. How do you find where the owner is? Well, there are companies that help you do that. So there are services that four or five years ago when I used to do this a lot, I found a few softwares that help you do that. But first of all, you go to the tax assessor's website. That might be where you find them because the owner's information is there and perhaps his new address is in there. Or maybe he never listed this house under that address. So probably he owns two or three homes or five homes or 10 homes and he's listed some other home as his address. Once you have that address, you start either direct mailing to that address. So you send them a postcard or a mail piece or whatever saying that you want to buy that property in a very marketable language. Remember, Joe, the beauty about this is who's your competition, right? This property is not on the MLS. It doesn't have a for sale sign on it. Literally, no one knows about it except for you. And if there's any other person who's aware of this right now on your podcast and is going to implement this. Now, the problem could be that the house is listed as this address for the owner. So what you do is you send a mail piece to this house, but the post office will either redirect it to the new place or send you back a postcard saying this person is no longer in this address. Here's his new address. That Ah. is another likely scenario. You need to have a language like a return service requested or something of that nature on your postcard, depending on where you are located in the country. But that tells the post office that, hey, if this is undeliverable, give me the new address. Hmm. And then there are other type of paid ways, like script traces type where they find you that person. If you're willing to pay a few dollars, it could be like $10 a lead or something. They help you find all their relatives, any known addresses, any past addresses. You start like a detective finding these people. So what happened to me is it got too overwhelming. I just hired someone out to find them, to handle all this mail piece. And I used to use clicktomail.com. And then obviously the skip traces, I can't remember the name of the website right now, but I used to use a couple of websites to do that. They just send you a PDF file with everything they know about this person. So there's a few ways to do it and there might be better ways today. I haven't done this type of deal in a year and a half now. So now from a real estate standpoint, are you focusing on investing in REITs? I am. I think in terms of the general economy, and by the way, I've written a lot about that niche that I just described. So if you want more information, if you're a reader, you can go to wealthresearchup.com forward slash real estate, and you can actually download a PDF file with a case study and all that kind of stuff that might help you more. But definitely research wholesaling vacant properties, and you'll find a lot of information online as well. I think RITs are publicly traded companies. So this is not like owning 
the actual piece of real estate. You don't own a property. You own a piece of a company that owns the properties. So the differences between that and owning a real property is if you own a property, you get your rents every month and it doesn't matter what the stock market is doing, your renter pays the rent and your investment is outside the stock market. RITs are companies that are trading on the stock market. So they are susceptible to market panics and market booms, etc. That's why I love them is you can invest in the type of real estate that you can't as a person. So consider, Joe, that you know that there are 51 million boomers in retirement right now. There's going to be 81 million people in retirement by 2030. So you're talking a quarter of the country retiring, right? There's a lot of elderly homes that are going to make a fortune. But how can you invest in elderly homes? You either have a few friends and institutions that you can raise money with and actually buy one, but you need to know how to manage it, all that kind of stuff. Or you can buy a writ that specializes in elderly homes. And then you have a piece of that equity and they pay a very fat dividend. So RITs pay between seen anywhere from 6 to 14% a year, obviously because they use leverage. So if you find a well-managed one with a good balance sheet and you do your research, those are very good companies, especially today. And the reason I say today is because when bond yields go higher, then RITs outperform stocks historically. That has happened every time the Fed has tightened monetary policy. And that's why I think bonds are a very lousy investment going forward. And I think people will do very well by selling their bonds portfolio and moving into RITs. And that's not even counting the fact that there's inflation. So if inflationary pressures come, then RITs will be an even better investment because the real estate equity itself will rise with inflation. I wrote about this. Again, I love these PDF files just because they give an added value outside the interview that I can share with people. So if you go to wealthresearchgroup.com forward slash bonds, you can actually read my analysis of bonds and we will cover in the next three, four weeks on the newsletter at Wealth Research. It's a free newsletter. We will cover two of my favorite writs going forward. And again, Joe, my thing is they invest in stuff that you can't invest on your own. So one of them, is the biggest owner of real estate that they rent to the federal government. So that's something very unique. The government offices are rented from this company. What tax document do you get at the end of the year? It just depends on your nationality. I'm not a U.S. citizen, but if you got a good good CPA and, and all that kind of stuff, then RITs are very tax advantageous. They had a chain in the tax law, obviously, with the tax cuts, they changed tax rules for RITs and MLPs. MLPs are also high yield type of mechanisms, but they invest usually in pipeline of oil and natural gas. But both of these asset classes have seen recent changes. So definitely research this before you get into it. But the idea is they remain a very tax advantageous way to do it. There's no depreciation and all the good stuff that we do with the genuine real estate holdings, but they have their own tax advantages which are better than the normal stocks. What is your best real estate investing advice ever? I think that the best real estate advice that I've received, and it's the best real estate advice that I can give, that it's all in the purchase price. If you can get a good purchase price, then that's half the sale. That is precisely how my mentor first told me about it. And I live by that with everything I do. Everything is in the purchase price, in my opinion. So it's better to wait and sit on cash than to buy mediocre 
investments. That's how I have implemented that advice in my own life. So if I have a chance to sit on cash, which is something that most people cannot do, they have this thing that I call activity disease. They have to have their money at play. I don't. And I think that helps me. I'll give you an example of how that can help. If you sit on cash, you don't earn a yield. If there's inflation, then you erode your purchasing power 2 to 3% a year. We all know that. We all get it. But think of a scenario like 2008. Sitting on cash was a tremendous advantage. And I'm not talking being 100% in cash. That's obviously stupid. But having 20% of your investable portfolio just sitting in cash is very advantageous. You are leaving yourself room to take advantage when other people are suffering from liquidity crisis. And that is important. And if you see two good deals at the same time, then having cash helps you capitalize on both of them instead of selling or liquidating another piece of real estate. How often does that happen, Joe, where you see two good things and you need to sell one of your holdings to have enough money to get into a new opportunity? And I don't think that's a good habit to have, to having to sell one thing in order to get into another. If you look at Warren Buffett, he has $70 billion in cash right now. Are you kidding me? $70 billion. So when one of the best decision makers of this past 60, 70 years is telling you, hey, I'm sitting on $70 billion worth of cash, how hard is it for somebody like you and I to say, okay, let's just put a million aside right now and wait at all times and not have it at risk, but just let it sit until that powerful opportunity comes. I equate this to being like an anaconda. The anaconda sits at the riverbank all day long and it looks at countless opportunities to eat small, nice little meals. But it just sits there and waits for that mother load prey. And it doesn't waste energy on anything else. And I think that's important because in order to be mentally ready to take advantage of opportunities, you can't be boggled down with other things. We all have our limits. It's very hard to be everywhere at the same time. So... It just makes life easier. And I think it's hard. That's why I think it works. It's very hard to stay in cash mentally. And that's why I think it's good advice. You know what I mean? Like anything that's easy is not as effective as stuff that is hard because then you know that other people are not doing it with you. Very true. Life lesson across the board on that last thing for sure. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? I don't know what that is, but I was born ready. All right. Well, you're, you've been working since you were 13, so this is nothing. First, a quick word from our Best Ever sponsors. Best Ever listeners, we have launched bestevercauses.com. That's bestevercauses.com. We profile a nonprofit or a cause that is near and dear to our heart, get the word out about their cause, and also donate money towards their cause. If you'd like to one, learn more about the causes that we're profiling. We do one a month. Then go to bestevercauses.com. And if you want to suggest a cause that we profile that is near and dear to your heart, then go to bestevercauses.com. And there's a little form at the bottom of the page where you can submit one and we'll check it out. Are you seeking investors, negotiating deals, and making things happen? The Seven Figure Sales Podcast has exactly what you need. Host Taylor Lote interviews real estate investors, sales trainers, and successful entrepreneurs to bring you their top sales secrets. 
Learn more at sevenfiguresalespodcast.com and listen on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Okay, best ever book you've read. It would be The Science of Getting Rich by Wallace Watless, 1911. That's the book that the Australian lady behind The Secret based all of her work on. Best ever deal you've done. I think the best ever deal I've done would be proven in the future, but it was buying Microsoft at $25 right after the crash. What's a mistake you've made on a transaction? I think the worst mistake that I've done was when I first started with wholesaling, this person who wanted to flip this home, he wanted to pay me after he met with the owner. And I allowed the owner and him to meet and they transacted directly between each other and he didn't give me my assignment fee. Basically, he said, why should I pay you your assignment fee when I can do the deal essentially with the owner and save a few thousand dollars? And that was a lesson to me to always get the documents inked before you do anything else. Best ever way you like to give back? Wealth Research Group. The way that this newsletter came to be was that I sold my real estate businesses in 2013 and I started a boutique fund with 20 well-to-do people that I knew from before and that trusted me with their money. And the bull market helped us make a lot of money in those two years. So by the end of 2015, I was ready to give this up because it was very, very demanding to manage money for these 20 people. And I said, look, what I want to do is I want to write and share my research with more people. And that is how Wealth Research Group got started as a labor of love, as we have sharing the information. Well, Lior, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your journey, the journey that began at the very young age of 13 and then has transpired throughout and then different approaches you take from investing in REITs, why you do that, what you were doing prior to that, wholesaling homes, buying vacant homes, how you did that, how you found the owner's tax assessor's website, sending the direct mail piece to the address, and then getting a return if they're not there, and then also skip traces, among other things. So appreciate you sharing some time with us. Hope you have a best ever day, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much, Joe. Are you seeking investors, negotiating deals, and making things happen? The Seven Figure Sales Podcast has exactly what you need. Host Taylor Lote interviews real estate investors, sales trainers, and successful entrepreneurs to bring you their top sales secrets. Learn more at sevenfiguresalespodcast.com and listen on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.